Good day, everyone. Welcome to another episode of What's Really Happening. I'm Dr. Tad Schnaufer, Strategy and Research Manager here at the Global and National Security Institute, GNSI, at the University of South Florida. As always, we're joined by GNSI's Executive Director, retired Marine Corps General, Frank McKenzie. What's Really Happening will take you behind the scenes and open the door to the knowledge, experience, and insights of a senior leader who has commanded the highest levels of the military, including commanding United States Central Command. Today, we're going to discuss major intelligence failures. The October 7th attack of Hamas on Israel achieved an unprecedented element of surprise and has many experts questioning how the Israeli and Western intelligence services could have missed this attack. In addition to this recent failure, we will discuss other famous situations where intelligence agencies have failed to inform or persuade decision makers of an impending crisis. We will discuss famous failures such as the attack on Pearl Harbor, the German invasion of Russia in 1941, and the 9-11 attacks. Finally, we will, we will touch on intelligence successes, such as the U.S. warnings of a Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022, and some possible solutions to minimize future failures. Well, good morning, General. Sir, I'd like to read a quick quote from Richard Betts. I quote, in best-known cases of intelligence failures, the most crucial mistakes have seldom been made by collectors of raw information. Occasionally, professionals who produce finalized analysis, but more often by decision makers who consume the products of intelligence services. Uh, from your experience, do you believe intelligence failures commonly rest at the decision making level? I think Richard Betts is exactly right. I think most uh, most people looking back at an event, you can always find evidence uh, of what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. But somehow that gets changed either at the very highest echelons of the intelligence organization to fit a preconceived idea of what the opponent should or should not do, or even more likely in the mind of the commander or the national security decision maker who's going to make the final decision. But the evidence is almost always there. It's just how you look at the evidence, how you organize the evidence, and set yourself up to make decisions on it. So as a commander or decision maker, what do you need from your intelligence personnel and their products to, for you to best consume that and make an effective decision? There's a famous study of the attack on Pearl Harbor, and in it they found that there was a lot of noise, and decision makers were drowned in the noise, all kinds of data out there. The key thing a commander needs to do is, with, in, in coordination with his intelligence people, is decide what are the important things we want to look at. And there shouldn't be too many of those things. Right. But you want to say, these are the things, and that needs to be a joint process. It should, invo it should involve the operators, it should involve the planners, and it should involve the intelligence officers. But most importantly, it should involve the commander. And what you do is you say, look, here are the things that we think are important. And then what I want the intelligence people to do is give me context. I want to look uh, for pattern recognition. I want to look at change and the rate of change. We said this is important. Well, it's changed or it hasn't changed. Both may be significant. Mm -hmm. And what I expect then is context from that senior intelligence officer. Because as you noted, the data is always there. It's how you, how you sort it into a pattern that makes sense. And that's very difficult. And a lot of it is, in fact, uh, quantifiable. Some of it has to be, though, ultimately uh, subjective judgment. What you want to do in measures like this is, as, as much as possible, reduce the uh, qualitative element of the equation to as small as possible. Mm -hmm. you, want to, you want to say there are 12 ships heading this way. That's a fact. That's an observable mm -hmm. fact. You don't want to, you, that allows you to narrow the space where you can make an error. 
It's very important to do that when you when you work with your Intel people to say, here's what we want to take a look at. Here's what we want to study. And here's what I want you to, to come and wake me up in the middle of the night if this happens. So. Right. And how, how do uh, intelligence analysts uh, decipher between something that keeps happening over and over again, like they're getting worn down. So we keep getting that 12 ships over and over again and you keep getting woken up. When does it, is there a burnout period where the intel gets old and then an attack happens? Well, that too is a, is a technique that others have practiced in the past and we have used. It's called desensitizing the right. opponent. The Russians uh, during the Cold War were famous for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would walk, conduct large-scale troop exercises in East Germany, come right up to the inter-German border, and then stand up, stand down, send their mm-hmm. troops home. Well, one day they could have chosen to continue the attack, but you get used to seeing that. And right. the theory is it desensitizes uh, the observer to that activity. It becomes normal behavior because it happens frequently. I think we saw some of this in the preparations of Hamas to attack Israel in, uh, out of Gaza here recently. But I think it's an important thing. And so what you what you have to do as a commander is. You've got to you've got to be understanding when they keep telling you this is happening. You've got to make sure your intelligence people know. I still want to know this, and then you look for nuance because if it's going to be a real attack, there will be some things that have changed. You just got to the analysts have just got to look hard to find those things. Maybe they change their calm patterns. Mm-hmm. Maybe they go silent, and sudden, if you're getting noise and suddenly there's no noise. That's not necessarily a good thing. Right. For us, that would indicate we are in pre-attack uh, planning and we're, we're fixing to hit you. That's what it would indicate for someone looking to the United States because we would shut down all our comms unless you're smart enough to continue to broadcast right. on those communications uh, you know, in a spurious way to convince the opponent that all is well. Right, and we saw this with the lead-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine where they had— uh, they had built up in April of 21, but the next build up in December timeframe, uh, January of 2022, they were bringing in a lot more medical equipment, a lot more of other equipment that the news was reporting on, stating that this looks like it might be different. When they begin to bring blood forward, that's a good sign. Right. That's something. Because that's a perishable asset. You're mm-hmm. not going to do that. And they began to stock uh, quantities of blood. That, right. that That's just one example. That's right. A, particularly tactical example, but that's a good example. There's certain things you can look for uh, to, to indicate that maybe they're going to, maybe this is the real thing. Right, right. And, but with that, and going back to the experience of where you're kind of getting these constant um, triggers and you're looking for something that's specific, how does the commander uh, limit their own bias? So from their own experience and try to look at, in a case, uh, each briefing individually, perhaps, and then also in context? Well, I found it always helpful to seek historical context. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to look at other cases, both in the region of the countries mm-hmm. that were involved that we were studying, but also at a broader level. And that's what a commander has to do. Right. You are the person ultimately that is going to make a decision on going, you know, going to the chain of command, going to the secretary and the president to think that something is imminent. You're, you're better at doing that if you're more broadly informed about the long arc of history right. in these kinds of operations. It, it, it look, it, it, it's never going to repeat itself exactly, but there's enough there that you can draw analogies from it. That's how I, my mind works, by drawing analogies. Others do it different ways. But for me, it was helpful to try to find a prior circumstance uh, and then sort of you're not looking to match it or make it fit perfectly. But there's some things there that's, that can help guide you as you make your decisions and as you as the commander ultimately look at the pattern and try to find, uh, try to sort it to find intent. Right. And as you're looking at patterns, one thing that is commonly uh, addressed is that a commander or a decision maker might be stuck on a plan. And so when they start receiving that intelligence that supports their plan, they tend to go with it maybe with less scrutiny as against, you know, intelligence that would go against it. How do you deal with a, that? A common term for that is confirmation bias. Right. You believe something. Therefore, mm-hmm. everything that's reported to you, 
you sort it in your own mind to try to make it support your belief. And that's a very dangerous thing. I think probably in recent years, the most egregious example of that was the Israelis in 1973. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was largely in the senior levels of their intelligence community. They believed that that Egypt would not attack across the Suez Canal. And despite the bridges were coming forward, all of the signs were there— Senior level uh, intelligence analysts, and actually not analysts, but senior level intelligence officers, mm-hmm. chose not to actually believe that was possible. So the advice they gave was that this is not it; it's not going to happen. And what you have to do as a commander is you have to be open to the fact that your view of the world may change, and it may change dramatically and radically. And that's why you have to get all kinds of uh, broad intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, non classified intelligence. You know, you have to sample the totality of the environment in order to develop a picture. Right. And looking at those historical examples, how does this understanding of intelligence and how, how decision makers consume intelligence, how does that um, relate to the failures at Port Harbor or the Russian failure to identify the German invasion in 1941, for example? Well, let's take the, the Operation Barbarossa that launched right. in June 1941, the greatest land military operation, certainly in modern history. Right. All the indicators were there. Everything right. was there. there the, the, the Russian spy network, which was very advanced, Richard Sorge in, uh, in Tokyo, right. was sending direct reports back. Stalin, at the very top of a, uh, you know, of, of, a, of a totalitarian system, refused to believe it. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, was punished people who did believe it. So there you've got a unique failure, a failure of the man at the top, mm-hmm. which is a weakness, I think, of all totalitarian systems. And, you know, when people criticize our system, I think we often don't pay enough attention to the dangers right. of a uh, of a strong man or woman in charge who can afford to ignore all advice when there are no checks and balances on them. We see, we see a little bit of that today, I think, in Russia with Vladimir Putin, mm-hmm. where you've got one man who's making all the decisions. Well, when it's reduced to one man, Without guardrails, then you depend on that person to be perfect all the time. And the one thing history teaches us is no one's perfect all the right. time. So in the case of uh, in the case of Barbarossa and the, the invasion of Russia, clearly it was all there. Clearly at the top, the Russians were not the Soviets were not prepared to accept that. Now a little different in the case of Pearl Harbor. Right. Again. Competing, conflicting intelligence, but all pointed toward Japanese action. Um, we made the mistake, I believe, of assuming it would not be at Pearl Harbor. There was a bias. They won't attack us at Pearl Harbor because it was difficult for us to defend there. It would be we wouldn't have done that, perhaps. And so you get you get um, George Marshall. One of his, his few mistakes, I think, is as the senior military leader of the United States in the in the Second World War. I think he tended to not. Uh, he tended to think it would, the attack would occur in the West. In uh, you know, in the Philippines or other places, and there was intelligence there that that attack would occur, and of course, attacks did occur in the right. Philippines and uh, and further and further in the Western Pacific. But they also struck stuck a dagger into us at Pearl Harbor, and we it did not fit our model of what we thought they were going to do. So, and there was so much noise out there, and right. the system was not efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the ability to deliver warning messages was not as it is today. Things moved slowly. Local commanders chose to defend the wrong thing. I think uh, Admiral Kimmel and General Shore right. in Hawaii both planned on the possibility of an, an attack. They just didn't think it would be a large, concentrated air attack. Right. They thought it would be saboteurs. So that's why you had airplanes lined up wingtip to wingtip at Clark Field right. and other places uh, in order to get, provide protection against local, what we would call local saboteur attacks, not a massive attack from the sky. 
Right. And so how does those intelligence failures of these large-scale operations, so obviously land invasion or air attack, how does that compare to non-state actors conducting attacks? So you have terrorist attacks such as the Hamas attack or 9-11. So, you know, I actually, uh, the Hamas attack on Israel, I would actually frame that almost in the case of a state-on-state mm-hmm. attack. Yep. Hamas is not, not a state entity, right. but they had many of the characteristics of a state operating in Gaza. So in the case of uh why was the Hamas attack successful against Israel? Well, they achieved, and I, w- I would say, both tactical and strategic surprise. And they did that because, first, I think, ruthless compartmentation. Nobody knew. Right. I don't even think the uh, people going up to their attack positions on the day of the attack knew until they got there that today was going to be the day. Mm-hmm. They cut Lebanese Hezbollah out. They cut the Iranians out. They cut their own political leadership out, which lived in opulent luxury in Doha, Qatar. They cut them out. Only those people who needed to know about the attack knew about it. Frankly, I don't believe the Israelis thought they had the discipline to do it. I would have joined that judgment. I would not have thought they had the discipline to do it. So they cut that down very small. They desensitized the Israelis Mm -hmm. by running exercises, bringing— uh, bulldozers up to the border, bringing people up to the border, a variety of things that tended to decentralize Israelis. They came down out of the electronic, um, they came down out of um, cell phone communications right. and wireless communications. And the Israelis have dominant capabilities in that domain. So the Israelis didn't pick up on that change, or at least at the higher levels. Now, one thing we know about Israel, they will thoroughly investigate this attack, mm-hmm. just as they thoroughly investigated the 1973 attack. Right. And we will eventually know all the details. And I predict we will find this was knowable. This was knowable probably at lower levels, but it did not fit the preconception of senior Israeli leaders who believe they had a sort of a quasi-deal, if you will, with Hamas, that they, they, the Israelis, would allow money to flow into Gaza through the Qataris in order to bankroll what was going on there and actually to take care of the people in Gaza, which left to their own devices, Hamas was simply incapable of doing. Hmm. So they believed this was a, a deal that Hamas would not want to break because surely they reckoned, they, they realized that if you attack us, we will come after you very hard. Right. So I think, I think again, you have a preconception about what the opponent will or will not do. You had evidence that they were planning this attack, but it didn't fit your mental model of what the enemy was supposed to do. And again, I come back to that. It is the most difficult thing in the world for a commander or a policy leader, civilian policy leader, the ultimate decision maker in things like this, to to sort of be willing to adjust your mental model when the enemy refuses to cooperate as you need him to do in order to fit your plan. Well, and then, so how do, how do you counter that as a leader? Do you have someone playing a devil's advocate in the room, or do you have a red team, or how, how do you how do you go through that? So the most a couple of things. First of all, um, you want to you want to be very careful that as a leader, again, you go back to you define the intelligence that you want to see. Don't drown in the noise. Right. And that's that's a judgment because if you make the wrong judgment, you're going to be looking at the wrong things. But right. that's that's what you got to do. If you look at everything, you look at nothing. Right. So you've got to choose those things. So that's the first thing you got to do. Second thing is you've got to be approachable. The intelligence uh, people who come to brief you have got to feel that they can be wrong and they won't be shot in the head if they're wrong. Right. You know, some you know they can they can come back and they can say, look, we made an error on this because they're going to make mistakes. It is inevitable that that's going to happen, and we just need to recognize that. And and the next thing would be is. You you probably need to think about what you noted uh, is a red team. 
Right. You need to have people that take a look at the problem, unconstrained by your biases, right. and you've got to listen to them, and you've got to empower them, and they've got to be good people. And service as a red team member has got to be seen as a very positive thing. We do generally a pretty good job of that, I believe. Sure. But it requires, again, constant attention by the commander. Right. And do you feel that it, despite all of the different solutions you might be able to offer a team, uh, intelligence operators or decision makers, that failures are inevitable no matter how good the process is, no matter how efficient? Since we're dealing with human beings and we're yeah, dealing right. with a clash of human wills, that is, of course, the essence of warfare. Mm. Failures of this kind are inevitable. What you want to do is you want to minimize the scope and scale of those failures. Sure. And you want to plan in such a way that your response is broad and deep enough to accommodate those initial mistakes that, mm-hmm. that are inevitably going to happen. Right, having that depth to correct where you might have missed it. You are that. exactly right. right, Dan. Well, and with that, um, you know, looking at the failures, but turning over to successes, so how did the U.S. and Western intelligence agencies, how were they able to, again, address, and we spoke about it briefly uh, earlier, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022, where they're crying that, hey, this is, or warning, rather, that this is, this is likely going to happen, and right. then different countries had different takes on that. So we knew pretty early, I think, that, that it was likely that, that President Putin was going to invade Ukraine mm-hmm. through a variety of sources. Um, not different than we've known other things. In right. this case, though, there was an openness to that, which some people disagreed with, including mm-hmm. Ukraine. Let's actually recognize sure. the yep. Ukrainians didn't believe it. Uh, and some people in Western Europe didn't believe it. But our intelligence community, and I was still on active duty then, and our senior leaders found the intelligence convincing. Mm-hmm. So I think what, in this case, President Biden did that was remarkable was he, he uh, authorized the uh, declassification of a lot of this information uh-huh. with the intent of deterring President Putin from acting. Mm-hmm. Look, we know what you're going to do. We understand what you're going to do. Uh, so when you shine a bright light on people, right. sometimes it changes. Them. Now, in this case, it did not modify his behavior. Mm-hmm. I still think it was an, an enlightened and wise thing to do. Sure. It didn't work. Now, where we where we didn't have as much success was we knew what the Russians were going to do. We were wrong in their ability to do it because I think we were still trapped in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a vision where we thought they were far more capable than they actually were. It turns out they're not that capable. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to know. It's the fighting heart of the soldier, which is the hardest of all things to quantify. It resists net assessment. Right. Uh, and it's, it's just difficult to get there. But I think in every other way, our intelligence was very good. I think it still continues to be very good. Mm-hmm. And we knew that if we came out and exposed the Russians, we would inevitably take a hit because they'll know They'll have a guess about how we learn this information. Presumably, they would change their practices. I, that's always the tension there right. between the intelligence uh, value of it and the operational value of using the intelligence. In this case, we decided the operational value was greater, and I think that was the right decision. And we'll see how that plays out in the weeks and months weeks and months ahead in, in Ukraine. Yes, sir. And, you know, with the U.S. success there, I mean, in, in some sense, like you noted, uh, there was expectations that the Russians would do better. Uh, on the on the war front, and obviously they probably thought the same. So there, there was likely some uh, Russian failure on their intelligence agencies of how that invasion was going to go. Particularly when you see the numbers of troops that they had on the border it was actually relatively low for the amount of scale that they were looking to take over, amount of uh, square miles they'd have to occupy. So, do you think there is likely a Russian failure of intelligence that they would might be uh, greeted as? Uh, liberators or something like that? I I think so, Ted. I think it was also part of a larger Russian failure to plan. And I go Mm -hmm. back to the dangers of a totalitarian society. Right. When all your decisions are essentially driven by one person. Mm -hmm. And that one person may or may not be approachable and uh, doesn't want to hear bad news. So you tend to not give him bad news. And so, therefore, that's how you get bad planning 
planning that might leave large elements of the military out of the plan. I think in this case, I think a lot of the Russian planning was done by the security organs, not actually the military organs of state. And that's not the way you want to plan a large-scale ground invasion. And looking at the U.S. structure, you have all these different agencies, you know, feeding information to decision makers compared to, like we said, the Russian uh, government, which might be more siloed. But in the U.S., you know, we have multiple different agencies feeding commanders and decision makers information. Are each of those uh, different sources slightly biased? And how do commanders or decision makers kind of uh, filter through those? Uh, you know, because they're going to have different perspectives on on issues. To have different agencies, different intelligence organizations are going to bring different perspectives. And that's not a bad thing, actually. Right. You want a wide spectrum of opinion. You just got to sort through it. Right. And that right. can become a uh, it can become a messy process at what we would call the interagency level. Mm-hmm. But I think it actually uh, allows you uh, to get to the best possible understanding of the situation. The danger uh, here is when intelligence becomes policy. Right. Policy should not emanate from intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, policy needs to emanate from decision makers. And I think, generally speaking, our intelligence community is aware of that. But there's a danger there that intelligence can be uh, of such a nature that it actually forces policy decisions. And that's probably not what you want. It needs to inform policy decisions. Uh, it needs to be in the room every time you're talking about these things. But it should not be, uh, it should not drive the policy decision. Right. And and lastly, sir, how do we look at intelligence failures and lessons learned going forward? So we talked about a number of you know failures, a couple of successes. So what are the big takeaways for decision makers as we go forward and, and continually analyze events around the world? Well, we need to recognize that intelligence failures are going to be inevitable. Right. And so that's just a fact. Um, how you inoculate yourself from that is you, you, you have a broad source. You have broad sources of intelligence, not single mm-hmm. source. You try to get as much input as possible, but recognize that the danger of being wrong is, is very real. And so when you craft your plans, it's the, what's, what's your level of confidence? That's right. another thing you want the intel guys to tell you. How mm-hmm. likely do you think this is? Right. And so you spend a lot of time batting that back and forth. That, that allows you to make plans. You know, this is the most likely thing they're going to do. Mm-hmm. This is the most dangerous thing they're going to do. Right. Here's, the, here's all the things in the middle. And so you want to, and it's an, it's a uh, it's a dialogue that needs to continue. The dialogue between the commander, the decision maker, the intelligence officer, and then the operator, and the planner. Right. Those people all need to be there, and they all need to be involved in that discussion. And it needs to be an ongoing discussion. Right. And in fairness to the intelligence community, uh, all the things they deter and things they find out, a lot of that never comes up in the public. It's only the failures that get magnified most of the time. So, you know, you're absolutely right. I look in three years as, as command of uh, U.S. Central mm-hmm. Command. I was a voracious consumer of intelligence. Uh, I met with my intelligence mm-hmm. people three or four times a day. Wow. And uh, and I, I, I never tired of getting that information. You have to and you have to keep that you have to keep that conduit open mm-hmm. and you have to have an open mind. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate it, sir. And that wraps up another episode of What's Really Happening with a fascinating discussion on intelligence failures with GNSI Executive Director, Retired General Frank McKenzie. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you in another episode when we find out what's really happening. Mm-hmm.